0: Hi, and welcome to the Friday, September 23rd edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am Joe Alcock. The title of today's podcast is Extreme Environmental Encephalopathy, The Brain at Its Limits, where we will discuss why the brain goes haywire in extreme environments, how evolution might be involved, and we will include a segment on zombies, which should be fun. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Macias. He's professor of emergency medicine here at the University of New Mexico where I also work. He started the program in Wilderness Medicine here at UNM in 2000. 2000, and you
1: were around during that time. You were finishing residency. I was
0: finishing residency, I I finished in 2000. So I promised in a previous podcast where we talked about high altitude evolution and discussed how various populations like the Andeans, the Sherpas and the Himalayas, and the Ethiopian Highlanders had each evolved distinct adaptations to high altitude. I mentioned that Daryl and I have had some expeditions to altitude, uh, most mm-hmm. notably uh, we went to Cotopaxi in Ecuador, and that was the highest altitude I've ever achieved. Mm-hmm. But my altitude bona fides are nothing like Daryl's. What's, what's the highest you've ever uh, ascended to?
1: Uh, let's see now. I got up to a mountain called Huascaran. It's 22,300 feet and It was delightfully sickening because I remember when I was climbing that mountain, it tops up into a plateau. My climbing buddy, who's French, was very competitive and he said, I will get to the top before you did. So we both decided to sprint. It was the dumbest idea to sprint 100 (laughs) meters to the summit, but that's about as high as I've been. And that's enough. That's enough. Yes, sir. So
0: the highest I've been is about
1: 18,500
0: feet. Uh, I didn't make it to the summit of Cotopaxi. I wisely turned around wisely. when I uh, started feeling like I had a headache and uh, probably had some some mild acute mountain sickness. So that was enough for me. By no means am I a mountaineer. Uh, unlike Daryl, who has made this a centerpiece of his career and has spent a fair amount of time in the mountains. And I, I, if I remember correctly, Daryl, you mentioned that you, might, you thought about becoming a mountain guide early in your career.
1: Yes, that's correct. Initially, even before medical school I was a renegade climber and I used to live out of my car in Yosemite and I would climb all summer and then when medical school kind of decided my trajectory for the rest of my life I had to decide well do I want to be a guide do I want to be a physician and at the time in the 90s there wasn't much of an option to be a guide that was easily done by physicians which now there are actually physicians but in the time, we didn't have the idea of becoming a guide in America as readily available as now. So, I decided I'm going to undertake emergency medicine. However, during my rotations at Harbor, remember UCLA and Harvard? Yes, yeah, so I, I, uh, I went to middle school also
0: at UCLA. <laughs> we both did, so we understand and, the culture there. i some training at Harvard, sure.
1: I remember this little book, and it was called Medicine for Mountaineering, put out in the 90s by this guy named Wilkerson. I can't remember his first name, but it was put out by the Mountaineer books, and they were purveyors of much of some of the wilderness medicine, I guess you could call it literature, textbooks. Now we have better resources than we've ever had before, but it was kind of an inspiration. I remember on my trauma rotation, the trauma attending just laughed at me and said, come on, there's no such thing as medicine from mountaineering. And guess what, Joe? The idea of wilderness medicine austere medicine is exploding. So unfortunately, that was a false prophet I worked with, that trauma surgeon. And I'm sure he's still middle-aged and has a nice gut. And I understand we're going to be talking a little bit about the gut later. So that's going to be exciting. We have to bring
0: gut microbiota into this as everything. (laughs) And you know, I tell my students that half of what the received wisdom that we get from our elders in, in medical school and residency uh, the vast majority of it is probably wrong, and we just don't know, you know which part is right and which is wrong as as, as we're learning it. So skepticism, skepticism is a yes. theme of this podcast, and certainly of the classes
1: that I teach. Absolutely, and I have learned, too, that having a vision, an idea, sometimes has to be promulgated because it keeps you healthy, but what it also finds out, as we were just talking offline, Joe, before we got on the podcast microphone here, was that Gut microfloria and some of the ideas behind zombie science would have been ridiculous 20 years ago, but now the scientific methods are being able to catch up to prove or disprove some of these things which we would have originally thought of as fringe science 20, 30 years ago. And we'll get to
0: zombies nice. later in the podcast. Nice. I promised uh, during my last podcast on high-altitude evolution that we'd, we'd have a discussion about your most recent expedition, Daryl. And I understand that you just got back from
1: your trip. Uh, you went to Shishapangma? Yes, Shishapangma. And a, a
0: friend of yours died on that mountain.
1: Yes, Dave Bridges died. Because of the mountaineering and the climbing that I was into, Dave was one of my mentees. So I was a mentor to Dave. I taught him climbing. We did much climbing together, especially when I lived out in California. As my career, ended up going towards emergency medicine, I found out that I had to devote more time taking care of patients than I could climbing. But Dave was spectacular and he was becoming a prodigy of his own right. And so was invited by another, unfortunately he passed away, amazing climber, Alex Lowe, that many of our listeners may have heard of in the past. They were climbing with eight other individuals up this mountain couloir the mountain is called Shishapangma. It's just over 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet in elevation. And as they were scouting out a possible route to climb up and to ski down, it would have been the first Americans doing so, an avalanche hit them at around 19,000, 20,000 feet and buried them under 20 feet of ice and snow. And it was pretty tragic. This happened in 1999. And I remember you telling me about this uh, when remember? I was a resident. You remember that? A
0: long, long time ago. This had a big impact on you.
1: It really did, because Dave was definitely one of my best friends, one of my best climbing partners and whatnot. And when you lose somebody to such a freak accident like an avalanche, it really affects the core of what you do. A couple of years before, Dave had invited me to be the medical doctor on an expedition to K2. And about that time, I was starting a family, and it was very difficult to think about climbing K2 and coming home with nubbins because of frostbite, and that would be a career ender, so I decided... Losing your digits. Losing my digits, so I decided not to, but one of Dave and my close friends actually died on that expedition, and I had a premonition that I shouldn't go anyways, so there are bold mountaineers and old mountaineers, but they're usually not bold and old, so that's amazing, so anyways, what happened was... About I think it was uh end of April beginning oh, but of before may that you,
0: there was oh. no expectation that the bodies would ever be found.
1: there was right? absolutely no expectation I mean, we were thinking a hundred years
0: from right. now, right someone some glacier uh melts years from now um, they were buried under a mountain of ice,
1: a mountain of ice that's correct yeah
0: that's correct, so continue
1: well, yeah, so anyways, I get this strange call saying we found the bodies of your friends. And I'm thinking, what? What are you talking about? It ends up that another famous climber in the winter tried to make a winter ascent. uh, Shisha Pangma, his name is Uli Steck, and him and his climbing partner actually found the bodies and contacted Conrad Anker, who was also part of that climbing expedition in 1999. And the description perfectly matched Dave and Alex's bodies. And so Conrad has a foundation to teach Climbing skills as well as first aid skills to a bunch of the Sherpas over in Nepal. So he and his wife Jenny, who had actually, who was actually married to Alex Lowe and remarried Conrad Anker, were returning, got this news, and that's where I came in as would I be willing to a go help find the bodies and B, become the medical doctor, if you will. So that's how I got involved. Wow. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Now, the problem was, we didn't have very long to do this, and now, being a That's nice... because of the
0: climbing season?
1: It's because of the climbing season, the weather was getting bad, and plus, just personally, now that I have a wife and kids and responsibilities here at the emergency department...
0: No longer the renegade mountaineer. No,
1: and we're running our diploma mountain medicine programs. I couldn't be gone as long as I would have liked to, so we had to do this mission in a period of two weeks and we had to get up to an elevation of about 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters and train very quickly. So I only had probably about a three to four week leeway to acclimatize myself. That's just nuts.
0: Is that enough time to acclimatize?
1: It is absolutely not. It's lunacy, sheer lunacy.
0: Yeah.
1: So here's what happened. I also became the physiological consultant, if you will, for some of the other climbers. Two of the people who were also Associate with Dave one is Dave's brother actually who is not a climber, but he had climbed somewhat with my other friend who's a lawyer actually Live at sea level and so I had to make sure that they were going to somehow acclimatize Dave's brother Dan was wearing one of these hypoxia masks that are touted to be the next greatest thing to slice toast But they don't really help you acclimatize. So you're sleeping at sea level
0: you put on some mask that decreases the amount of oxygen available to you?
1: Decreases the total amount of air. Air. But that's under normal baric conditions. Yeah. So, so it's it, normal baric hypoxia and it's somewhat contrived.
0: Yeah. Sounds scary too.
1: It was scary.
0: Like suffocating yourself.
1: Yes. And I can tell you a little bit about how he did on the mountain as we go along in yeah. the discussion. My other friend was just busy taking care of his legal cases and trying to get things organized. And so he, like me, has a family and it was hard for him to get away. However, I was fortunate to take advantage of our hypobaric chamber where I could train. I could train in the local mountains like you do at about 12,000, 13,000 feet. And I could actually go and have a few sessions in the hypobaric chamber at 18,000 feet. So so, it was So so we're lucky. We are lucky.
0: Here in New Mexico because we have access to high altitudes. Absolutely. Within a few hours drive, we can get up to... So it's easy to get to 10,000 feet. We can do that in minutes.
1: Right, and where do we live?
0: We live at uh, Six about 6,000 feet yeah. Yeah, elevation. Right. Um, and as, as listeners to my podcast know, I tend to go up to higher elevations to exercise. Uh, it's nicer in the summer. It's more, more pleasant. You get away from people. The air is clean. Um, and it's just a great workout. Uh, so we're lucky in that way. But you mentioned hypobaric chamber. Yes. I know what you mean, but I'm not sure if our listeners do.
1: So what a hypobaric chamber does is it evacuates... The air from this large tank. It used to be a diving hyperbaric chamber, but a while ago, the physiology, the exercise physiology department rather, decided, hey, you know, we can put a goncolator or some kind of device or contraption on this thing to suck out the air. And so there's multiple chambers that you goncolator. do. It's a goncolator. Like oh, that right. word. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, uh, what's the Rube uh, device? Well, anyways, we're getting off on a tangent. So what you could do is you can evacuate the air out of this chamber. And because you're evacuating air, you're also decreasing the ambient air pressure. And so what happens is you are causing an effect, an effective hypobaric hypoxic chamber. So you're decreasing the amount of air. You're decreasing the amount of air pressure. And it's a suffer fest. So is this like these hypoxia
0: tents that people use, athletes use?
1: No, absolutely not. Yeah, it's different. It's because the hypoxia tents are under conditions of normobaric or whatever ambient pressure you live at hypoxia. So many scientists have debunked these things. They may have some utility. However, it takes a lot longer to use these types of tents. And, of course, you can have your family around, but they're not quite as effective as good old hypobaric hypoxia.
0: Yeah, so the chamber mimics the experience of being at very high altitude.
1: Es correcto, um, yes. It has the same
0: impact on your body that it would be to actually be at 18,000 feet. Yes. So you guys were uh, trying to get your bodies ready for this experience.
1: So we got ready for the experience. I felt somewhat okay. Remember that we cannot necessarily exercise our way to altitude acclimatization. It just doesn't work. You actually have to spend time at high altitude. So I would take and some sojourns up in the Sandias at 10,000 feet. I'd sleep overnight and you know take advantage of exercising in the other local mountains. Is this like
0: hypoxic preconditioning or is this something different?
1: It's... It's kind of like hypoxic preconditioning, but that's a little bit it's different. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Hypoxic preconditioning is where you take an extremity, you put a blood pressure cuff over it, and you hope that what will happen is you it's actually called ischemic preconditioning. And mm-hmm. so what you're trying to do is hurry up the process of acclimatization. And that will work for about up to 18 hours at altitude, but you're going to be longer than 18 hours at altitude. So the jury is out. It doesn't really work for long sojourns
0: okay, but spending time at altitude or in a hypobaric chamber that's got some pretty good evidence for it. Yes well before we plunge into the rest of your story, Daryl, I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, the experience you had on Mont Blanc when you encountered a blue climber
1: one of the bl- the blue climber is uh, another climbing partner of mine that actually started becoming blue or hypoxemic because he was at altitude and he didn't acclimatize as well. And this is in Peru. But I've seen several blue climbers. You're alluding to the time when you and I went up Cotopaxi, And when we went to Cotopaxi, we took one of our other emergency medicine faculty up there, and she was blue. In fact, I have a great picture of it. And it was a blizzard in that early morning start. And what happens with the blizzard is you're actually effectively decreasing the ambient atmospheric pressure. Thus, it's simulating actually an increase in altitude, if you will. And she was blue, and she had to turn back. She just was not healthy. I remember the one person that we had on that expedition who had high-altitude cerebral Yeah, That was interesting.
0: So it's interesting that these high-altitude exposures... One of the major organ systems that gets affected is the brain. Yes. And, of course, when your brain's affected, that, we, that tends to take things to the next level in terms of severity. Everything relies on the proper functioning of the brain, particularly your ability to get off the mountain safely. If your brain's not working, then that's going to make it pretty tricky. So this is something which is, you've encountered a bunch of times, and we've encountered in uh, Cotopaxi, Ecuador.
1: So I've had acute mountain sickness, you've had acute mountain sickness, it just doesn't feel good. On epoxy, I remember coming down off the mountain, I felt great. But when we got down to 12,000 feet, which is where our base camp was, which was our nice hotel, I just started getting a terrible headache and I couldn't understand it. And I think there's a continual inflammatory process even after you descend. And the thing about high altitude cerebral edema is it does not immediately go away. It isn't like high altitude pulmonary edema where you descend and you're fine. High altitude cerebral edema, maybe because of the prolonged swelling, inflammation, it continues to hit you hard. And one case in Shishapangma I had was one of the climbers could not get out of the tent. He couldn't get out of bed, and I was so this, this is on your, on your recent expedition? This is expedition. on our recent expedition, and I was going, oh my gosh. I wish I had kept up with this guy, but, you know, I was having my own hypoxic ordeal. So right. it was very difficult, and I ended up giving him a boatload of medicines, oxygen, and he ended up getting better, fortunately.
0: So, So there are some medications that that might work. But before we get into that, I mean, what do you, what do you think, Darrell? How many deaths do you think happen because the brain's not working? What, what I would call the encephalopathy of extreme environments. So a brain function because the human brain is not evolved to deal with these extreme, extreme conditions. Is that, is that something which we should think about?
1: I think we should because I don't have any exact statistics on how many people die because of this encephalopathy be it from hypoxia or even from diving, right, but in my case, for instance, I was alluding to this case of high altitude cerebral edema. I remember the day before where my thinking became very slow. We were at base camp, which was at about seventeen thousand five hundred feet, and it took such effort for me. To use a water purifier, do basic stuff. To stuff, do, stuff do ba- that, you know, I, I was camping, having a hard time walking. Camping
0: here in New Mexico, you'd have no problem filtering your water, right? Exactly.
1: But, and yeah. I'm thinking, what are the steps that I need to take? Oh. And then I look over to the base camp. I have to take care of all those people medically. It was really a chore. I was thinking about 50% slower. So can you imagine, Joe, these guys who push for some sort of high-altitude summit, they make a lot of mistakes. They may not tie in correctly, which has happened a lot in Everest. Mm -hmm. They may make really bad decisions. The 1996 Everest tragedy highlights a lot of bad decision yeah. making so and
0: John Krakauer uh, described that very nicely in the book very nice air mm-hmm. uh, and I think the statistic that, that stood out to me is that 3% of people that attempt Everest die and that meant that number may be higher now with the recent avalanche that affected a lot of absolutely Sherpas. that number may be higher than 3% now
1: right well we know that there's up to a fifty percent case mortality rate for high altitude cerebral edema it depends on a lot of conditions could they be evacuated and things like that but I'm telling you that the idea of the encephalopathy of extreme environments is a real and present danger so back
0: to your your uh, the tent mate uh, on this expedition
1: he couldn't find his way out of the tent wow. so to make a proper diagnosis of high altitude cerebral edema, you have to get him out of the tent, you have to walk him, you have to do what we call a tandem gait test, which basically means that you put, it's a sobriety test, if you will, like the cops will do if you're drunk driving, and he failed that. His mentation wasn't very good, and he had a raging headache and vomiting, so I knew what we were dealing with, and I had to get on it very quick. So... Not only was I slow, I had actually, this is interesting, Joe, I took my pulse oximetry the Mm -hmm. night before and I was getting the oxygen tents, excuse me. this is with one Uh, of these little tiny uh, little handheld devices? Correct. And I was getting the oxygen mask and the oxygen tanks ready because they were oxygen tanks from Nepal, so I wasn't used to them. And I uh, had an oxygen saturation of 73 percent. Keep in mind that normally you're going to saturate it about 100 percent at sea level. People up here, where we live in Albuquerque, about 95 percent. I had an oxygen saturation of 73%. So, 73%?
0: Yes. You know, if someone, if, they, <laughs> uh, if I get an EMS call, and if I'm working in the ER, and they call over the radio, we're bringing in someone <laughs> with a te- uh, the oxygen saturation of 73%, yeah, we're going to have respiratory therapy there. We're going to be ready to do rapid sequence intubation. Right. Because probably they're not going to turn around.
1: Exactly. Well, the nice thing about being an expedition doctor is I had access to my own oxygen bar. So I took a few hits went to bed, slept great, and that could be dangerous too, but right. uh, at any rate, I woke up getting ready to rally the troops because I was also one of the expedition leaders and our friend was staying in the tent, so I had to go full action.
0: So what happened next? Medication. I mean, how close how close were you to uh, finding your friends on the mountain at this point?
1: So after I got my one friend treated for his high-altitude cerebral edema, he did remarkably better. I couldn't was exactly. He, was he
0: able to continue, or did you have to get him off the mountain? No,
1: there was no way I was going to let him continue. So I said, yeah. dude, you need to stay here. And I put a, a, some other people in charge of his care while I was gone. And we had a bunch of yaks, so the evacuation could have been simple. But we just wanted to see what would happen, because it would have destroyed the expedition, which is a very real thing that happens in all expeditions. You have one person who's deathly ill, and what do you do? He wasn't deathly ill, but he was at an early high-altitude cerebral edema, and so I was kind of in a quandary as to what to do. So the person I put in charge, she was very capable, and she was ready to evacuate. But our friend got better, and so what had happened was we go up to the mountain. We didn't have very good maps or anything like that. We find our friends. We take them down, and I'm telling you, these Bodies of our friends they were heavy if you're trying to haul somebody down at 20 19,000 feet Oh, what a bunch of work. Can I, we were can exhausted. I ask, can I ask you Daryl? Yeah, you
0: know, these, this is your friend. We're talking about Yeah, well, what, what was that experience like for you?
1: It was awful. Yeah. It was simply awful I It imagine. was really awful though when I looked at their faces. It was yeah. it was crazy But you knew that you were here to honor your friends and that was one of the impetus Empathy <laughs> of going was to pay honor to my friend. It yeah. was the only right thing it's to the, do. It's
0: the, the, the human thing to do.
1: It's the human thing to do. And as climbers, we know that death is part of this sport. And so we have to accept it. When you were
0: planning this trip, did it occur to you that someone might die trying to recover the bodies? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm thinking about this, this, uh, this, this crazy thing that... Uh, occurred with a cave diver. You know about this? Um, You can actually... The guy who recently died. David Shaw died in 2005 trying to recover the body of Dion Dreyer. And this was at Bushman's Cave in South Africa. Uh, It was an incredibly deep dive that this technical diver, David Shaw, attempted to do. And ultimately, he he died. They have the audio of his last breaths attempting to recover the bodies of... How deep did he uh, go? He went... Um, he discovers a body of, the, of feet, DeAndre at right? two seventy meters underwater, eight hundred ninety feet. This is wow. a, a, so like an incredibly deep dive. So sometimes the the human instinct of trying to do body recovery of your friends uh, that can that can go awry, and we certainly wouldn't want to put other people at risk because that's something that crossed your mind on this
1: absolutely it definitely crossed the mind of friends and family yeah i'm sure <laughs> because you're going to recover your friend's body in an right. avalanche zone where yeah. they died right so you're thinking gee so my my philosophy was okay if we get the bodies great but not at the expense of human lives so because of the diploma mountain medicine training that I've had, I realized that first I need to take care of people, then I needed to be a rescue specialist, and then the third thing was to recover the body. So if there was any inkling of danger, we would be prepared, and we did have the proper equipment to undertake the task. So
0: I think that diploma in mountain medicine and your medical training in general uh, highlights that. We're we're, we're more attuned, I think, to some of the risks. We know what can happen to people.
1: Absolutely, and you need somebody who is in tune to the risks to go on any sojourn. So this diving... Incident that you mention, I'm sure this guy was solo, was he not?
0: No, it was a uh, it was a supported dive. There was a bunch of safety divers at different spots uh, with extra tanks of oxygen, and it was, they did it as safely as they could. But the bottom line is, for that that environment was just too extreme, too dangerous, not worth it. Ultimately, uh, to that was the lesson from from that that event. It was beyond the limits of human endurance and the the likelihood that something could go wrong. With the theme of today's podcast that the brain goes haywire in extreme environments, that more or less happened to him. He ended up retaining carbon dioxide and died as a result, we think, of that. And of course the air is much thicker at 870 feet underwater, and so the work of breathing was incredibly great. He ended up having encephalopathy from hypercarbia, which is retention of carbon dioxide, and it's thought that he died because of that.
1: Hmm.
0: But, so ultimately, did you get everybody home?
1: We got everybody home, yes, yes, and it was great to be home. I bet. And I felt so good because I ended up going home via France and Iceland, and being at sea level, I felt like a superhuman.
0: I bet you did. Yes. So it really does since you actually had a case of high altitude cerebral edema, i didn't know about that until uh Hmm. this podcast a couple minutes ago oh there you go so it kind of raises the question that again many of the issues that we encounter in the wilderness at their core are cognitive failures people making mistakes you know not clipping in stepping into crevasses um swimming with the fishes uh and thinking that you don't need to um use your scuba tank uh, if you're suffering from nitrogen narcosis. There's lots of examples that we have learned about in which people's thinking contributes to their demise. So I'd say that our brain fails us at extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, either high or low, and when we're not buffered uh, from environmental stresses. Like in our modern lives right now we're in this climate-controlled environment in your office, but when we're out in the wilderness in some of these extreme environments It takes a toll on us and we're not and the point is that we're not evolved to cope well with those kinds of stresses
1: well you know it's interesting let me add this this is kind of off what we're going to talk about but there was an interesting thing that happened when we were going to make the final push to find our friends in the glacier one of the friends that i was taking with me we had you know group of five people we had two groups go and I was in charge of one of the groups. His experience was very interesting. He was having a hard time at the altitude. And this is a, the, one of the friends that lived at sea level. He became fearful. Hmm. Now you think fearful. What is going on there? It was this unexplained fear. And I've had this too. Like fear of heights? Just fear. Fear of doom. It's, it's like, like Generalized doom. anxiety. Doom. Generalized anxiety. And I got to be thinking, he was pretty hypoxemic as well. His saturations were probably in the 80s because I was treating him with medications. I wasn't taking any medications at the time, but I decided after that epiphany that I'm in charge of some of these people. I decided to take the medication because if I go, everybody goes. Um, Not quite like that. That's a little heroic sounding, but you know, my gist. So anyways, my other friend, he just had this strange anxiety and I got to be thinking you know when the blood flow is compromised you undergo a lot of stress what happens is that, that prefrontal cortex the decision-making part of your brain is compromised and what takes over is the amygdala the central brainstem that reptilian brain, brain that we talk yes exactly yeah. right and emotions take over and they can be really strong
0: You know, and I'm thinking about my shift last night in the ER where we had people that were agitated and agitated delirium. Probably not too different from what you're describing.
1: Their amygdalas were working great. It's a common evolutionary string. Yeah,
0: so the common pathway when your brain's not working is uh, to, in some cases, become extremely anxious, agitated. Fight or flight. Yeah, a little fight or flight also.
1: Exactly, or fear, freeze.
0: So there are similarities if we're going to talk about this encephalopathy of extreme environments or this zombie-like condition in which we lose the capacity for rational thought. We see it a lot in a bunch of different settings. Uh, Acute mountain sickness and and haste, we've mentioned that. We have colleagues that take part in and supervise extreme endurance athletic events, like uh, the Western States 100-mile race, in which uh, hyponatremia is a real risk, and that can cause seizures, coma, death, and it's more mild manifestations uh makes people not think correctly and make make uh, make make mistakes um heat stroke is another good example and yes. hypothermia people do bizarre things before dying like taking off all their clothes exactly and that was described in john krakauer's book into thin air yes and then, of course, we, we have nitrogen, nitrogen narcosis. And, uh, uh, we know that well. Tension we? of... We do. Yeah. <laughs> most, most recreational divers have experienced that.
1: Oh, it's fun. So what,
0: what is that? Tell us about, about your experience with, with uh, nitrogen narcosis.
1: Well, Jez, you remember when you and I were taking our advanced dive course over at Blue Hole.
0: That's a place in uh, central New Mexico. Central Mexico, New Mexico Santa it's Rosa. It's well. Yeah. It's a limestone cave with fresh water flowing out at, at, at a constant temperature. And it's a good place to dive. It's the only really really accessible place to do a deep dive in you know, the Where continental US, U.S., at least this part of the U.S.
1: Right, and it's at 4,000 feet elevation. So when you and I were making the dive to 80 feet, what happens is the dive master who's teaching us some of the skills and is testing us to become advanced open water divers, did a little test we went to 80 feet and he had us do simple math problems and i remember he gave me a simple division problem on this little underwater whiteboard and i could not do it and i just started laughing it was just hilarious and i don't know why i would what's so funny about division what's so funny about not doing a math problem but i was just giddy you ever got giddy uh a little bit
0: where you feel you feel really good you feel really good and that's danger amygdala what's going on there
1: I guess it could be your <laughs> amygdala, it could be the lipophilicity, the affinity for nitrogen to dissolve in fatty tissues such as brain, and it affects you, and it's right. like drinking a martini. That's why they call it martini's law. They call law. it
0: the martini's law. That's right. So the nitrogen is thought to have an anesthetic, like an anesthetic gas-like effect on your brain. Well, so far this has been great, Daryl. Um, <laughs> I, I, I brought in a couple of papers so we can do a, a little review of some of these uh, topics I wanted to cover today. All right. Uh, Here they are one one which was brought to my attention by elise bick who is in charge of microbiome digest and she uh, highlighted this paper about gut fermentation promoting decompression sickness in humans so this is a paper published what journal did we say this was journal of applied physiology 2016. we've talked about decompression sickness decompression sickness can also affect the brain uh, when you get bubbles that obstruct the flow of blood and oxygen delivery in the brain and elicit an inflammatory response. Yes. So that's what we've taught our students. It's, you know, there's a simple story here uh, involving gas laws and you know take up of nitrogen. But this article says that gut microbes are involved. That's so is crazy. that is that crazy?
1: Well, it sounds crazy. I know it's not crazy because I happen to believe in the gut microbe theory and that the gut yeah. itself is like our second brain. So no, I don't think so.
0: So per- perhaps not. But even before we knew about gut microbiota, we've thought about nutrition for high altitude and nutrition for divers. So what are some of the nutritional precepts when you go on a dive trip?
1: One of the things that we're taught in diving is you do not want to eat food that will cause gas like beans and whatnot because it will just we make have, you we have talked about that we have talked about that
0: and we didn't we weren't thinking about gut microbes when we when we had this no, conversation. no we're yeah. thinking of methane we're thinking of, <laughs> but methane, of course the baby. Methane, methane is the production of fermentation of methanogens gut bacteria and archaea in the gut right exactly so it, turns out. So it should have been obvious to us that the gut microbes are involved but Again. you don't smell it underwater. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you also
1: get high altitude flatus expulsion. This is, heft, this is true. Is what they call it at altitude, because you're more likely to produce more air, if you will, or methane in your gut as you're ascending to altitude, and you just gotta let it go. That's true. But you know the interesting thing is, Joe, is we find that at high altitudes, the appetite is severely compromised, and you nice. wonder why.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a interesting. I have some ideas about that too
1: what are your Um, ideas cleason and
0: colleagues did work where they measured endotoxin the cell wall component of gram negative bacteria in high altitude mountaineers uh, hiking trekking in, in the himalayas and they found that there was a signature of increased endotoxin in the blood of these mountaineers we know that endotoxin is anorectic it makes you not want to eat correct so Perhaps we see that in these, these patients hypoxic too. stresses, Vomit. The, the gut not getting enough blood and oxygen, your brain not getting enough blood and oxygen, that may cause a leaky gut. So bacteria and, and toxins, including endotoxin from the gut, makes its way into the bloodstream, affects the brain, makes you not want to eat.
1: Well, help me understand, because my understanding is there are good bacteria in the gut, and they provide an effective barrier against some of these pathogenic bacteria, they cause the barrier to be strong there's so good right. tight junctions so, so, so there there's are, iga yeah. mm-hmm.
0: so there are uh, some bacteria that seem to strengthen uh, gut barrier function and others that uh, seem to impair it
1: so how do we avoid that
0: i think it, it it depends interestingly fiber fermenting bacteria in general are thought to actually strengthen the gut barrier function so fi- you, we dietary fiber. fiber maybe but then, the, then again there's some evidence like this paper that we're just talking about the authors are how would you pronounce that
1: that would be, Sebastian de Mestre, Nicolas Vallet, Emmanuel Gomp, or Jean. And these these folks are, are with, Swiss, yeah. as I understand it. And again, the
0: title of this paper is "Gut fermentation seems to promote decompression sickness." so that guy is well known in elk, humans. Yeah. Is that right? Yes,
1: uh, in diving plateau. medicine, I've yeah, run yeah, into his articles.
0: <laughs> so what this? I'll just summarize this real briefly okay. for for you. They had. Uh, people that had presented to their institute, their hyperbaric center, which is how we treat people with decompression sickness, and they admitted 39 divers that had neurological, you know, affecting the brain, uh, decompression sickness. They compared this to 39 healthy control divers that did not have neurologic DCS, and then they measured their gut fermentation rate with a breath test. So a simple Mm. test measuring exhaled hydrogen, in this case, and we know that hydrogen is a is a byproduct of bacterial fermentation in fact hydrogen can indicate uh, fermentation of otherwise undigestible sugars that occurs in the lower gut but also in the, in the uh, small intestine as well hmm. so these divers seem to have some evidence of a abnormal fermentation pattern so hmm. this might be diet this might be too much fiber so fermentation substrate or it may be too many of the bacteria that are involved in the fermentation causing the hydrogen they have some rat data that also support this hypothesis that diet and microbes predispose in rats to decompression sickness. This is the first paper that suggests in humans that something similar is happening. And I would guess that there's going to be a whole series of papers that are going to come out that are going to provide some more robust physiologic link between the composition of bugs in our guts and our predisposition for decompression sickness. But this might have a big impact on the things that we eat on a diet trip. Maybe we shouldn't have a lot of indigestible carbohydrates on a diet trip. Maybe we should eat mm. different kinds of foods. We don't know. That study's not been done yet.
1: What's well, interesting if you listen to the work of Michael Greger, and he actually wrote a book. It's pretty interesting how not to die. He calls these bacteria that eat fiber and that keep you happy and decrease overall inflammation of the body, prebiotics. So we've got Right antibiotics, which of course there's a big controversy with that. There's probiotics, which are the bifidobacterium and some of the stuff in the yogurt. And then there's these prebiotics. You keep the bacteria that you have endogenously happy. You let them eat fiber and they're happy, but maybe that's not a good idea in diving. I don't know.
0: Maybe, so we don't know. We don't know if it reflects increased overgrowth of hydrogen producing bacteria in the small intestine, which is a pathological condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or it may simply be a dietary thing Hmm. You know, in general, I think that for overall health, eating beans and having a high-fiber diet seems to promote health and longevity and is protective against cardiovascular disease. I'm not going to advise anybody listening here that we should, they should take out fiber from their diet. Eat but red meat some, and McDonald's. Yeah, there may be some <laughs> specialized conditions maybe immediately right before a right. dive trip in which it, you, you might want to forego some of these things. So it's an, I found it an interesting thing. It, it ties together my interests in gut microbiota uh you know evolutionary considerations and wilderness medicine all in a nice nice little package that there could be something going on there again with the the core idea that we are we
1: are mismatched
0: us genetic lowlanders are mismatched for these extreme environments does weird things to our bodies our brains and our microbiotas
1: i guess we weren't meant to be at high altitude
0: and maybe not underwater
1: maybe not maybe have have, have
0: you heard about the aquatic ape theory no, i got to hear about you this. No, a what is
1: this? What is this new teaching? Uh, well, it's, it's not new. <laughs> it's new to me.
0: And uh, it's gotten some recent press. So the idea is that many features of our bodies, um, the fact that we have you know, a little, little uh, tiny bit of webbing between our digits here, the uh, fact that we're hairless, yes um, the fact that we have big sinuses that, that contain air, uh, the fact that we have a diving reflex, yes. uh, that this all reflects something about our having an evolutionary past that includes an aquatic phase. Suffice it to say that uh, I think that the aquatic ape theory has a lot of problems. Um, The main criticism of the aquatic ape theory is that it's an explanation that seeks to explain why we seem to retain some features that are good for maybe supposedly good for us underwater but then it doesn't explain why these features have persisted up until now when clearly we have not been aquatic for a very very long time.
1: Except so, if you're Michael Phelps, sure.
0: Yeah, sure exactly. Well he may be aquatic. He may be. Uh,
1: all right. Now your gills are looking pretty good Joe.
0: So we're on to fish. Let's, oh, I uh, love fish. let's 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 uh, segue zombie in
1: fish. into zombie fish
0: <laughs> so I promised you zombies you know the argument that I've, I've made is that many of what we see in wilderness medicine involves brain malfunction we lose control of, of our cognition we make bad decisions it's almost like some external force takes over our brains You know we're talking uh, metaphorically here but people have been interested in this zombie phenomenon now you've
1: been to Haiti yes I have did you encounter zombies I encountered some very interesting individuals (laughs) under the influence of maybe it was substances or some sort of supernatural effect. So the zombie phenomenon
0: in which people either have come back from the dead or appear to be taken over by forces that are not themselves, that is intrinsic in the voodoo tradition. I'm by no means an expert in Haitian voodoo, are you?
1: I am not, but it is very interesting, and you could actually tie in Haitian zombieism and, if you will... Possession by malevolent spirits.
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's all yeah. a very similar idea. You can
1: tie it in, I believe, with quantum physics, strangely <laughs> enough, and the right metacosm. But we—that's <laughs> a no other podcast there, baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna highlight. This is an article which was published in our literature, Accident and Emergency Medicine. Ooh, English journal. Yeah, Journal of Accident and Emergency Medicine. This is a 20-year-old paper, 20 1997, year old. but it's a review of ichthyosarcotoxism poisoning by edible fish. And in this paper, which was written by Ian Grant, he reviews in a, a short section all the different kinds of fish flesh poisonings that one can get,
1: including scromboid, ciguatera.
0: Tetrodotoxin uh, poisoning, fugu, fugu? yeah, uh-huh. from pufferfish. pufferfish. And then you mentioned what was the other one? Ciguatera. Ciguatera. Mhm. Uh, he's got a paragraph here talking about hallucinogenic fish poisoning,
1: the dinoflagellates and arguing that
0: toxins, it says, including indoles akin to LSD have been been implicated to causing fish, flesh, hallucinations that he says may be the basis for the zombies of Haiti. So here this is in our Mm -hmm. literature Mm -hmm. of our specialty, without without a whole heck of a lot of uh, evidence
1: for it. No, but but there's even zombie practices in the Native American culture we have here with peyote, yes? Yes. And they see things that normal people do not see. They hallucinate. I
0: think that New Mexico is a center for hallucinations. (laughs) <laughs> it's time to move, right? <laughs> or stay? It's interesting. But let me let me uh, let me bring your attention to this though. Indoles, mm-hmm. what makes indoles? What are indoles?
1: I forgot. I remember from organic chemistry. Got bacteria. But, that's yeah.
0: a, that's a, so yeah. There it is. Scatols,
1: indoles. These are
0: mm. metabolites from bacteria. So again, this is not very well substantiated, but there's some suggestion that products of bacteria might produce a hallucin- hallucination syndrome, which is akin to the zombies zombie phenomenon in Haiti. Is this Endols. a good paper? Who knows?
1: It's kind of interesting because I just <laughs> had an epiphany right now yeah. as you're reading through this is that, you know, the precursor of the serotonin is 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid. And yeah. I wonder if the gut helps manufacture serotonin. Absolutely. Oh. Um,
0: 80 to 90% of the serotonin in your body has a gut origin.
1: Interesting.
0: Some of that comes from enterochromaffin cells, which are in mm, uh, the cells. intestinal epithelium. But the rest of them come from, wait for it.
1: They're in the gut microbiota. Yes, and the adrenal glands, because you have chromaffin cells in the adrenals. Yeah, true. That, isn't that interesting? So isn't that bizarre That's that the bizarre. exact
0: same neurochemical, which is produced by our cells, is also produced by gut bacteria? <laughs> That's funny. It, it raises the likelihood, and we've alluded to this in the podcast too, that gut microbes might be controlling our bodies and our, our neurologic systems.
1: Were you the one telling me that 90% of the composition of a human is bacteria? So I know where I uh, heard that. Uh, maybe I, I may have, I may have said that, uh, that that those numbers have been um,
0: they've been downward revised. Oh, good. It's now thought that we contain uh, about an equivalent number of microbial cells as human cells. That's a lot. About thirty trillion, as it turns out. Oh, which that's yeah, it's a lot. Lot. That's it's a lot.
1: It's a lot. It's still weird.
0: <laughs> as far as we know, we're st- our genes, the, the genetic makeup of our bodies, is still outnumbered by and by microbial genes as opposed to human genes. Hmm. But the. the Getting back to our zombies and the Haitian zombies, there was a a paper that talked about the environmental toxins and various poisons that can induce a zombie state. And this is a paper uh, published in 1983. It's again an oldie by E. Wade Davis, and it's in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology, and the article is called The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie. This is, I wouldn't say it's good science, but it's very entertaining. This is a good read. Okay. It's got some great pictures. It's got a skull. It's got uh, some Haitians that are you know, pounding cemetery remains into some kind of a poison that is uh, meant to be either a treatment or a zombie poison. And they mention pufferfish. So that's, that's fugu. So for people that don't know, the toxin in pufferfish is tetrodotoxin.
1: Tetrodotoxin. What does yeah. that do to you?
0: All these fish flesh poisonings—they cause a violent gastroenteritis, so nausea, vomiting. Some of them cause neurologic symptoms, like paralysis. Um, like paralysis, uh, Siguatera does that. Mm. It, it blocks sodium channels, and the pufferfish tetrodotoxin also blocks uh, sodium channels. So it's a neurotoxin, and also it, it blocks aerobic metabolism in your in your cells. So it makes it so that everything kind of shuts down. Not a good idea. This no. is not, not something you'd want to do voluntarily or even involuntarily.
1: No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh,
0: so this this idea that proposed by this paper by Wade Davis that tetrodotoxin is responsible for zombie syndrome, it's been criticized. I'll draw your attention to The Skeptical Inquirer, dated June two thousand and eight by Terence Hines, in which he provides a provides a criticism of the idea that tetrodotoxin causes the zombie syndrome. But listen, who knows? It's not, well, it's wait not a minute. totally out of, out of the ordinary. If but you hey, get
1: paralyzed yeah. and then the tetrodotoxin wears off, it's not enough to paralyze your respiratory system, and then you maybe. wake up from the
0: dead. So may, maybe zombies are caused by tetrodotoxin and our, our friends, the pufferfish. How do you eat a puffer fish with all those spiky things? I don't know. Mm. Very carefully. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so listen, I think that we'll just wrap this up with uh, one more observation, which is, does the fish make the tetrodotoxin?
1: I can say yes, but I know the truth is no. But let's say yes. I'll That's hedging. You're hedging. Let's say yes. I'll just say yes. All right. The puffer, I,
0: the puffer fish does not manufacture its own to I know where
1: he was going with that.
0: All right. So here, here you can, if you take a puffer fish and you raise it in an environment without microbes, so a germ-free puffer fish, that puffer fish is non-toxic. It can't make the make the toxin. So they actually acquire to elaborating microbes from the environment. And they sequester the toxin made by bacteria, mostly in the ovaries. And then they deliver that mm. toxin to the eggs. So that's a whole other evolutionary story there about why the pufferfish has evolved to harness this toxin, which is produced by bacteria. But the bottom line is this is a bacterial effect. So here again, we have the gut microbiota of pufferfish, providing some advantage to the fish in terms of, let me me ask you this. All right, suppose you're a pufferfish and you get consumed by an enormous grouper and the grouper (laughs) gets sick because you have tetrodotoxin in your ovaries and in your flesh. Does that benefit you?
1: It doesn't benefit that individual, but maybe there's some kind of a group learning that I don't know about in biology that would say, hey, grouperfish friends, (laughs) don't eat those things.
0: So it may, it may be that, uh, that there would be, if that happened enough and killed enough grouper fish, they might they might evolve some way to
1: distinguish between
0: fowper fish and more edible fish and avoid them. Correct. So that could be, that's kind of a group selection argument. Maybe that's the case. That kind of thinking has been criticized because really, again, mm. that individual does not benefit. Correct. What does benefit are the eggs of that individual. Again, the toxins concentrated in the ovaries, the eggs are highly toxic, and in fact... Um, They've gotten images of predator fish taking up a egg that's loaded with tetrodotoxin and spitting it out. So that individual reproductive effort seems to benefit by the protection of the toxin. That's why tetrodotoxin evolved in pufferfish. It's not to protect the adult. It's to protect the eggs. Yes. That's a hypothesis.
1: That makes sense.
0: So Sigwatera, the other one. So Captain Cook uh, has an account of eating a barracuda. They all got sick. Uh, this is the other fish flesh poisoning. And it causes a weird sensation where hot feels cold and cold feels hot. That's called cold allodynia. It's cold a, allodynia. It's a weird neurologic phenomenon. Also caused by bacterium. Wow. Siguitera is from a dinoflagellate, also a microorganism that's concentrated in the flesh. There's at least some evidence in barracuda that the toxin also protects its eggs like tetrodotoxin. That might be why it evolved. But some people Mm -hmm. have proposed that siguitera is the zombie toxin.
1: Interesting. And why is that as opposed to tetrodotoxin?
0: Uh, Because, well, ciguatera also causes a death-like state in some individuals, which is why the first paper that was published in the journal Neurology proposed that we use mannitol, which is a medication we use for head injured patients mm-hmm. who are in comas, and they said, said it worked. Uh, that has been tested in randomized controlled fashion, and now we no longer use mannitol for sigmatera uh, toxicity. But listen, we've covered a lot of ground here. Whew. <laughs> yes, we have. That's great. <laughs> Everything from zombies to fish to all the weird ways that your brain malfunctions at altitude and deep in the water. So, yeah, we have a lot of opportunities for, uh, for zombies. Unless you have anything else that you want to mention, uh, I will say that we are starting a zombie apocalypse medicine conference.
1: Oh, please. Come uh, on now. Listen. Oh, <laughs> all right. I'm all ears. <laughs>
0: this is all science evidence based. We're not we're not making stuff up. Well,
1: here. tell me about it. I know nothing so we are
0: planning a zombie apocalypse medicine uh, association, so very, ZAMA. Very nice. And we are—we have a going to be a conference that that uh, will be scheduled. The date is to be determined. It will be in 2018. Wow. Uh, we're thinking it's going to either happen in Arizona or here in New Mexico, depending on which venue ends up being a better better fit. But we're going to explore all these things. We're going to explore mind control by parasites like the microbiota. We're going to talk about ways in which our cognition and free will is impaired by conditions like these wilderness medicine diagnoses that we've talked about in this podcast and a whole lot more. Zombies are a great way to introduce evolutionary thinking and wilderness and disaster medicine to a larger audience.
1: I think that sounds great. Wow. Well, good luck. Keep us informed on that. That sounds exciting, Joan. It's been great. Just talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Daryl. I agree. Great conversation, and we will keep this up.
1: All right, Joe. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. We put out a podcast, so if you folks are interested, listen to our podcast. It's on iTunes, and it's called Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. Ah, Shameless uh, (laughs) self-promotion. Shameless plug.